Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Ms. Carolyn, and good morning, everyone. My name is Christian, and I am a member here at Doxa Church. I've been a member for a little over two years now, and uh, I am truly humbled to be standing before you all, my family, um, and not just my earthly family, but my spiritual family here at Doxa Church. Um, I'm not perfect. You all know that I'm not perfect. This sermon will not be perfect, but... We're family, so I hope that uh, you will show me some grace, and I hope that God will be able to use me for his glory this morning and for the good of our church. Before I begin this teaching, I want to go before the Lord in prayer. I need him this morning. We need him this morning. Anything that I say to you this morning is in vain if the Lord is not empowering my words. And anything that you hear this morning is in vain if the Lord is not working in your heart and in your mind. So let's turn to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your grace and for your mercy. I bring nothing to this pulpit apart from your grace. I need you to help me and to empower me this morning. I thank you for this church, for Doxa Church, your church. You love them and you have made them my family. So help me to teach them, Lord. Work in their hearts that they may hear from you. I ask that your spirit would fill this place and work miracles this morning. Miracles of changed hearts, miracles of renewed minds, miracles of awakened spirits. I ask that it not be my words and thoughts that go forward, but your, but your words and thoughts. Help me to serve you well and to love your church well this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So for the last several months, we have been walking through uh, Paul's letter to the believers in Rome. The title of the uh, sermon series, which you see behind me, is The Gospel Changes Everything. And to this point, Paul has walked us through a breakdown of the gospel. He has shown us how every person, both Jew and Gentile, is depraved from birth and how we all deserve God's righteous punishment for our sin. He has detailed, though, for us God's plan of salvation through life, through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, and how that salvation is available to all people, both Jew and Greek. 
He has spoken on the implications of the good news for those who are saved, and he's also addressed the questions that those might have as to how God's nation of Israel played into this plan all along, starting in the Old Testament. More recently in the letter, Paul has begun to address the practical steps that the believer must take as he or she embarks upon their new lives as followers of this faith that was called the way. This really all begins from the song that Paul sings at the end of chapter 11 as he is once again reminded of the mercies of God. It's the verse that Jeremy spoke to us early at the beginning of the service. Paul, early in his life, was actually known as Saul. And he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He spent his days rooting out those who were the sons and daughters of God Almighty, and he was persecuting them. He was there cheering while they were brutally murdered simply for loving and following Jesus. And instead of God sending fire from heaven to incinerate Saul there as he stood, as he rightfully deserved, God had mercy on Saul. Jesus revealed the truth to him. The one whom Saul persecuted had actually died for his sins. Jesus, whom Saul hated, loved Saul even unto death. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. This is why Paul sings those verses. Those are the mercies of God that Paul is referring to in the first verse of chapter 12. And so Paul begins to tell believers how they are to live in light of these mercies. And to be clear, these verses that I'm going to be talking about today, they are meant for believers in Christ. If you have not experienced the mercies of God in your life, then you cannot experience what Paul is going to be talking about here in chapter 12. You cannot experience spiritual worship if you are spiritually dead. You cannot experience a renewed mind if your mind is currently enslaved to Satan in the world system. You cannot receive gifts in faith if you have no faith in God. And I'm not seeking to be exclusive here or antagonistic, but this is just simply the truth. The good news is, however, that if you have not experienced the mercies of God, today can be your day of salvation. Jesus loves you just as he loved Saul and died to take the punishment for your sins. You can have his righteousness and live with him in power both now and in eternity if you simply receive him as your Lord and Savior. There is nothing else that you need to do. You need not clean yourself up. He takes murderers. He takes adulterers. He takes all manner of sinful people. He took me. He loves them all and he is the one that purifies them. So having experienced the mercies of God, Paul tells the believer in verse one to live their lives as living sacrifices unto God, which is spiritual worship. In verse two, he talks about how we are to do this practically by being transformed each day by the renewal of our mind, being careful not to be conformed to the ways of the world. And now that we see in verse three how the renewed mind helps us in the context of life and community. So let's dig in here and look at verse three of Romans chapter 12. It begins like this. For for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So now that we have a renewed mind, we should be using that mind to evaluate ourselves and make sure that we aren't thinking too highly of ourselves. 
Now, at face value, this might seem like a pretty challenging uh, statement. We might think, um, you know, it's a, it's a challenging task to undertake. Don't think too highly of yourself. But actually, I think in reality, one of our tendencies is that we're not challenged enough by this statement. We might think, well, sure, I, I know that I'm not all that. I, I know that I make mistakes. I screw up. I know I'm not perfect. In, in fact, now that I, I think about it, I'm really not all, all that great. I, I don't really think all that highly of myself at all. But the problem with that line of thinking is that this exhortation from Paul to not think too highly of ourselves is not talking about thinking of yourself individually. This is talking about how we think of ourselves compared to other people, specifically how we compare ourselves to other Christians. Look at verses four and five. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. The word for that Paul uses right at the beginning of that verse shows us that his exhortation for us is to not think too highly of ourselves. That exhortation is to be done in the context of our relationships with other Christians in the body of Christ. Sure, when thinking individually, it may be easy to come to the conclusion that we aren't perfect. We may even go so far as to admit that we are a wretch. But how easy is it for us to look across the aisle at that other Christian and say, well, (laughs) at least my life isn't as messed up as theirs. I may struggle in this area, but I, I certainly don't struggle as bad as they do in that area. I may not be gifted as much as they are in this one area, but I'm way better than they are in this other area. It's when we make these comparisons that we subtly elevate ourselves in our own minds. It's the reason that reality television has dominated the ratings for the last 20 years because we make ourselves feel better when we compare ourselves to other people in their lives. The natural mind thinks too highly of oneself, whereas the renewed mind strives for humility when compared to others. So how are we to do this? How can a believer war against the natural tendency to elevate ourselves above our neighbors? Well, we see the answer at the end of verse three. We are, Paul says, to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So we are first to think of ourselves with sober judgment, which means we need an objective, unbiased view of who we are. And we can only achieve this How? According to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Measure of faith. So what does Paul here mean when he says measure of faith? Well, it's a little complicated. There are are two primary schools of thought by theologians, and I I really don't want to bog us down too far into theological arguments, but because there is such a disagreement as to what Paul means here, and both sides agree that it really could go either way, and it's extremely difficult to tell, I just want to show you both sides. First, the word measure comes from the Greek word metron. Now, this can either mean a measured amount, like how much milk you pour into your glass, or it can mean a method of measurement, like a measuring stick. Secondly, the word faith here can either mean the ordinary daily faith by which the believer lives and ministers, or it can mean the saving faith that Christ supplies to all and is the same for all believers. So here are the two interpretations. Interpretation one says that Paul is actually saying that God gives believers different measurements of faith, of daily faith, by which they minister. 
And since even our day-to-day faith is a gift supplied by God, we shouldn't think too much of ourselves or our gifts or our ministries even because it is all ultimately a gift from God and not our own doing. This echoes what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses eight through nine, when he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So that's interpretation one. Interpretation two is that Paul is saying that saving faith in Christ crucified is the standard by which we should measure ourselves soberly. So this view better suits the unity that Paul is trying to point to us here in the following verses of this passage. And it also echoes what Paul says in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I honestly don't know which view is best. I've kind of bounced back and forth. I actually kind of think it's a bit of a both and situation. The Bible does teach that faith, even saving faith, is a gift from God and there is no room for boasting. That Jesus is the author and the perfecter and sustainer of our faith. Believers also do have varying measures of faith, day-to-day faith, by which they live and which they minister. And our faith can wane, though God has promised to sustain those that are his. And we cannot think too highly of ourselves based on our faith because it has ultimately been supplied by the Lord, but also we can't think too highly of ourselves because the king of heaven who supplied our faith actually humbled himself to take on flesh, become a human like us, and then die on a cross for our sins. So let's move on now to verses four through six. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So Paul here is talking about the church, and he's using the same body metaphor that he actually uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You see, the church is all one body, one complete body and we are each a part of that body. So just like a human body has different parts like legs, arms, eyes, ears, a mouth, and they all do different things, they all serve different functions, so too does a church have different people with different gifts that each serve different functions. A healthy body has many different parts that all function properly. They are all dependent on one another. So too it is with the church. And Paul's not just actually talking about the universal church, the church around the world here. He's, he's actually referencing the community of believers in Rome. That's who he's writing to here. He's talking about the local church body. So therefore, this same principle applies to us, Doxa Church. We are most healthy when we have a wide variety of people with different gifts, purposes, and functions. We depend on each of those people to contribute to the needs and to the efforts of the body. We need each person to use their specific gifts well and towards the purpose that God intends. If we have too few members, 
working towards the effort and contributions of the church, then we will be an unhealthy church. If we have too many members with the same gift, then we will be unhealthy. And not just unhealthy, but we won't actually be, dis- be displaying God's glory to its fullest potential. You see, God is glorified in the diversity of our gifts. Keep in mind that each of these gifts, they are different aspects of the perfect character and power of God. So his glory is most fully expressed when all of those gifts, that wide variety of gifts are used together and they are all present together working as one body, as one group of people, as one family. Now, before I jump into the various gifts, I just want to stop for a minute so that we can fully appreciate the, the awesomeness and kind of weirdness, the supernaturalness, the otherness of this whole thing, this truth that I'm going to be talking about. When you become a believer and you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you are then given superpowers. Yes, it's kind of like something out of a comic book, and I, and I know it, it, it kind of actually sounds crazy, but I mean, I, it's not crazy, right? I know it's not crazy. I believe it. I've seen it. But probably to an outside observer who doesn't actually believe in God or the Bible, they would probably think that we're crazy when we tell them that God has given his people supernatural gifts or powers. But it's true. The Bible says so. The Spirit empowers his church to have supernatural strengths and abilities in certain areas that are meant to build up the church. Supernatural strengths to build up the church. So not actually supernatural strength to like jump over buildings or lift cars or things like that, but still supernatural. So because Paul goes into, the greater, into greater detail in other areas on the gifts of the spirit and how they are to be viewed and used, I'm not really gonna go into too much of that today. But I will say that it is important to know that they are gifts given by grace, which means we don't deserve them. And they are given from God. He gives them to his children for the primary purpose to edify, which means to build up the church and to also urge one another on to good works. The gifts are not meant for you and you alone to enjoy. They are not meant to cause division. And they are not meant to impress those outside of the church. We also need to keep in mind that in all of this, the glory belongs to God and God alone, not ourselves. We should not seek the gifts by themselves. We should be always seeking the gift giver. Finally, we should always view these gifts in light of the gospel. In verse six, Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. He uses the same phrase that he uses at the beginning of the passage. According to the grace given to us, he says, by the grace given to me at the beginning of the passage. It's the same way, the same way that Paul was given the gift of apostleship by Jesus Christ. So too does God give our gifts to us by grace. He gives gifts to those who do not deserve it. He gives them to the wretched and despised amongst us. They are not given by merit. You did not earn those gifts. They are given in love by Christ. So what are the gifts mentioned here by Paul? And how are we to be using them? Well, let's read starting in verse six. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, 
of service and our serving, the one who teaches and is teaching, the one who exhorts and is exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. First, it should be mentioned that this is not meant to be an exhaustive list of all the spiritual gifts. We know this because the gifts of the Spirit that are listed here, and they're actually listed in other places of the New Testament, and many more gifts than these are listed in those other places. Also, there does not appear to be any rhyme or reason as to why these particular gifts are mentioned, so Paul most likely is just listing some example gifts for the community of Rome, the, the believers in Rome, to understand how the gifts work and what they are. So let's just start by looking at the first gift mentioned, prophecy, a biggie. Uh, Before I begin on this, I just want to acknowledge that much of the mysteries of this gift are debated and disagreed upon, even in the church at large. You here sitting with, with, with us here, and maybe you at home watching online, you may not agree with some of what I'm about to say, but I do think that this is an open-handed issue where we can still be unified, unified in vision and purpose, though we might disagree on some of the theological nuances. But prophecy simply means one who speaks under divine inspiration. This is a gift that Paul felt should be one of the higher regarded gifts and one that people should be seeking to have. People who had the gift of prophecy in the early church did not carry the same authority of truth taught by the apostles because their prophetic speech was meant to be scrutinized by other prophets in the church. A person who has this gift is to use it in proportion to his or her faith. That's what Paul says. So this likely means that they are to make sure that their utterances, their prophetic utterances, are in right proportion to the Christian faith, that is the basic faith in Christ that all Christians share. In other words, their prophetic utterances should always line up with the truth of Scripture. Now we're actually going to, I know service comes next, but I I just want to skip service real quick and go to teaching because uh, teaching is a speaking gift, just like prophecy is. But whereas prophecy has a revelatory basis, which means the one gifted in prophecy speaks the words that God puts in their mouths, Teaching involves the passing on of the truth of the gospel as it has been preserved in the church. To illustrate the difference, John Piper, I I heard in a sermon that he gave one time, he talked about a time when he was preaching. And uh, as a sermon illustration in that that, uh, sermon that he was giving that day, he kind of offhandedly mentioned that someone could start a Thursday morning Bible study at their office. Now, after the sermon, he was approached by a woman who thanked him because she had been praying to God about starting a Bible study at work, and she was considering Thursday mornings to be the the place to start her Bible study. Now, John Piper had no clue about any of this. He didn't know any of this, but, but God had given him a prophetic utterance during his teaching. So, so whereas prophecy is typically a spontaneous spirit-led utterance, teaching is a gift that can be expressed over time and can also be honed with practice. Those who have the gift of teaching are actually called to cultivate their gift and develop their teaching ministry. And a healthy church provides them opportunities to do so. So now going back up to service, 
The Greek word used for service here is a generic word with a wide variety of serving ministries and meanings, but but Paul is most likely referring to a specific gift of service that qualifies a person to fill the office of deacon. This is the same translated term that actually Jesus, Jesus, uh, excuse me, this is the same translated term that Jesus uses when he says, for the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The gift of service should be the foundation for heartfelt and sacrificial serving of others, just as Jesus used that gift. So now going to exhortation. So exhortation is a big word, but it can it pretty much simply mean encouragement here. It comes from the Greek word parakaleo, which has a wide spectrum of meanings as well. This gift, exhortation, may be exercised from the pulpit. It might be used through writing. But more often, this gift is used behind the scenes as the gift of counseling or, or offering friendship to the lonely and giving fresh courage to those who have lost heart. Barnabas was actually known as the son of encouragement. Evidently, he had this gift and he used it to such a degree that they started calling him by that nickname. He used it in befriending Saul of Tarsus. I mean, what a testimony that would be, huh? If somebody here in Doxa was using their gift of exhortation and encouragement to such a degree that we started calling them the encourager, Dale the encourager, son or daughter of encouragement, I do want to mention in preparation for this sermon, I have been greatly encouraged by many of you, and I do appreciate you using those gifts of exhortation to help lift me up and prepare me for this. So moving on to contribution. The one who contributes or gives, that too is a gift of the Spirit. Now while there are many who give or have given in this world, there is This is a supernatural disposition that the Spirit gives specifically to people who receive great joy and satisfaction when they give. And most likely, this is also someone that God has put in a position where they are able to give. It can be time, it can be talent, it can be money. But Paul exhorts the one who gives to give to others straightforwardly and without ulterior motives, with cheerfulness, with generosity. Paul also exhorts leaders in the community of faith to pursue their calling with eagerness and diligence. A healthy church should be recognizing those who have the gift of leadership and helping to train those and equip those to use that gift that God has given them and putting them in positions to learn and hone their gift of leadership. Finally, the gift of mercy. I really appreciated what John Stott had to say about this. I'm gonna read it for you. Since our God is a merciful God, his people must be merciful too. To show mercy is to care for anybody who is in need or is in distress, whether they be aliens, orphans, and widows, the handicapped, the sick, or the dying. The whole church of God is called to care for these people over and above others. That's us, Doxa. Those are the people that we are called to care for over and above everybody else. Yes, 
We're called to care and minister for everyone, but it's the helpless that need our help first. That is the character of God. God cares for the helpless. The one with this gift has a heart for those in need. Mercy is not to be shown reluctantly or patronizingly, but it's to be shown cheerfully. Now, one important thing to note is that just because you may not have a gifting in a particular area does not mean that God will never ask or expect you to serve in that particular area. Just because you may not have the gift of mercy does not mean that you shouldn't be merciful to those that God puts in your life. God will occasionally call his children to serve in areas that are uncomfortable to them. That's how he stretches us. That's how he sanctifies us. He may ask us to do things that we're not very good at. But these are usually exceptions to the rule. God will always ask you to use your gift in proportion to your faith. And he will always expect you to do it to the utmost of your abilities. So there's one question that has not been addressed, and so I just want to finish our time by discussing it. How can a Christian know what gifts they have? I mean, God doesn't write it on our heads. He doesn't send us a letter in the mail saying, here are your gifts, enjoy them. I mean, it's an important question, right? How do we know? And although it's not explicitly answered in this text, I do believe that the context actually points us to the answer. The gifts of grace given by the Holy Spirit are primarily to be used in the context of the local church. That is who Paul is writing to, and that is who he is referring to when he mentions the body of Christ. It's the community of believers in Rome, the local church. Doxa Church, we are the body of Christ. We are a family of believers, and we have a calling to proclaim the name and fame of Jesus Christ to Myrtle Beach and to the world. And we have been given supernatural gifts to build his church and to urge one another on to good works. So it's the local church. That's how you discover your gifts. That's how I discovered mine. Those that I'm aware of anyway. I don't know all the gifts that I might have, but the ones that I do know, it's because I've served in a church and I've had other church members come alongside me and, and recognize gifts in me and encourage me in those gifts. And I've, I've gotten to fail at things and realize what I'm not good at, administration. I suck at that, just letting you know. But I've also been shown ways that I am good at. That's why I'm up here today. I hope that God is using my gift of teaching to teach you something today. It's through the time I've spent committed to serving the bride of Christ and doing life with my family of faith, whether it be in Chicago where God saved me, whether it be in Virginia or, or here in Myrtle Beach, God has been able by the, his grace to use my gifts to edify his church and he's used believers to encourage me in my giftings. It's the local church where I have seen God most clearly and most spectacularly show up in my life. I mean, so many people today hunger for miraculous signs from heaven, and it's not just today. They did in Jesus' time as well. We're always looking for something spectacular, some angelic apparition, some voice booming from heaven. But the biggest miracles that I have ever seen, they were in the context of the local church. Like a man who had been struggling with alcohol addiction for over 50 years, and I saw a brother come alongside him for six of those years 
and he had this gift of exhortation and he faithfully and patiently poured into this man. And I would see this man fall time and time again, often in tears because he never thought he would break free from those chains. He would always return to the bottle. And then one day, he shows up to a small group meeting, a completely changed person. I mean, I saw a joy in him that I had never seen before. He was free. He knew he was done with drinking. He lived in victory over that sin. He was filled with joy and happiness and zeal for the name of his Lord who delivered him. After the grace of experiencing Jesus in a profoundly new way for six months, he was then called home to be with his Savior. I've seen a single mother struggle to pay her bills, living paycheck to paycheck, But then she would often speak to me of these miracles of just finding money out of nowhere, just multiplying in her purse, or or just cash showing up from people that she didn't know who was giving her money, just money showing up in her mailbox. God was always finding ways to faithfully and miraculously provide for her and her child. I met a woman who was a Mormon for half of her life experiencing the burden of good works that was placed upon her by the Mormon church. She was disabled and she had difficulty walking. She often had to use a a walker or, or a wheelchair to get around. Her car broke down one day after church and she asked a Mormon churchgoer for assistance. She was later then chewed out by a leader of that church for tempting her brother to sin by serving on the Sabbath. The next Sunday... She went to a Christian church and she had prayed that morning that if Jesus was real, that she would meet the real Jesus that day. And after church, a man whom she did not know said that the Lord had laid it on his heart to take her to the gas station after church and to fill her gas tank up. And when they arrived, he not only filled her gas, he cleaned her windshield He checked her tire pressure. He checked the fluid levels of her car. And she was in tears because that day she met the real Jesus. These are the miracles. These are the gifts and the mercies of God. As a believer, you are much less likely to see and experience God in this way if you are not plugged into a local church. In fact, if you are living an isolated life as a believer, you are in grave danger. And I urge you to seek out a church that has the spirit of God present. You cannot survive simply by watching church online or on TV. Do not think too highly of yourself. You need community. I need community. We all do. And I understand there are many things to take into account in the current time in which we live but we cannot live Christian lives apart from the church. We were not designed to do so. Not only must Christ be central to our lives, his church must be central to our lives. That is his bride, his body. You cannot separate the bridegroom from the bride. Church is not a building. It's a family. It's a community of faith. Church is not a social club. It's not a Sunday pastime. It's not something that, we should, that should take a back seat to work or to school or to football. Church is a way of life for the believer. 
For those of us that have forgotten that, I ask that God would awaken us now, that he would give us a renewed love and zeal for his bride, for his family. God, help us to use your gifts for the edification of the church. And today, if you're listening to this and you are not a believer, you can be a part of our family today. Jesus is calling you. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or how far you've fallen. God is a God that saves sinners. He has done everything necessary for your salvation and your inclusion into his body, into his family. Simply just call upon him in repentance and faith. He is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Doxa. Let's not think too highly of ourselves. Let's not boast in our giftings or in our measure of faith. Let's not also stay spiritually asleep and treat the church as a one day a week activity or an application on our phone. Let's not be a church that has forgotten our first love. Let's be a church that is ready for the return of her bridegroom. Let us be a church that knows the day and the hour in which we live. Let us not be slothful in zeal, but instead be fervent in spirit. So let's ask ourselves, Doxa, who are we then? How shall we think sober-mindedly about ourselves and our church? Well, Doxa Church is not filled with good people. (laughs) It's filled with sinners. But it is filled with sinners who have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. We have no other plea And we have no other boast. So in light of this good news, let us be the body of our Lord. Let's be his hands and his feet. Awaken us, Lord. Send us. May it be for your glory and not our own. Amen.